Hello and welcome to the Humanizing Growth podcast series, brought to you by the Institute for Real Growth. Each week, IIB founders Frank Van Den Driest and Mark de Swan-Arons will be talking to global leaders and practitioners to discuss what it takes to drive human-centric growth. For more information, visit www.instituteforrealgrowth.com. Well, thank you very much for doing this. So, uh, Deepak Chopra, welcome to the Institute for Real Growth Humanizing Growth Series, a theme which we started talking to leaders and thought leaders around the world about roughly a year ago, well before COVID started, and, uh, and a theme that seems to have been overtaken by the world and by reality. Deepak, we always start these conversations in the same way. Where are you and how are you? Well, if you want the truth, I am outside of space and time. I'm non-local. Right now, my localization is uh, San Diego, California. And I am um, amazingly well. I can't say otherwise. I, I would be lying otherwise. Now, um, it's special to have this time with you. Deepak, when I uh, mentioned to our audience of um, several hundred senior marketing leaders mostly, but uh, lots of business growth leaders too, that we would be talking and um, that we were recording this session so that I had the ability to ask questions in advance. I got 25 questions immediately. Uh, so what I'm gonna be doing is uh, walking you through some of the questions that I really wanted to discuss with you. And then I'm gonna throw in a few that um, the participants in the leading humanized growth program asked me to tell you. So if I can just ask you to step back, as I know you have post the election and, and actually look at the world now a, a year into COVID, what, what do you think has changed to the world and in the world? Uh, as you look across the human landscape right now, since COVID-19 uh, became a pandemic, what you're seeing is different stages of what is generally referred to as grief. So grief is uh, an experience that we all have when we lose something that we assumed was normal or we took a way of uh, life for uh, granted or we lose a family member or we are in fear of death or somebody dies or there's a catastrophe, then we experience grief. And the first stage of grief is actually uh, victimization. A lot of people are still in that stage. The second stage of grief frequently is anger. And a lot of people are still in that stage. Then there is hostility, which means somehow you think you can beat this thing and you get uh, vengeful in your mind. It doesn't work. And so the next stage is frustration and helplessness. And unfortunately, unfortunately, I've seen people go to this stage in the midst of a crisis and die. I mean, I've seen these stages of grief within one hour in a patient who has a severe heart attack. And then you watch this poor person dying, helpless, frustrated, scared, frightened. It's an awful, awful experience just watching this experience. So is there another stage? And there is. And that other stage right now, we need to embrace. Otherwise, I honestly tell you, we're doomed. 
That stage is acceptance of the facts as they are right now. Not anybody's emotional wanting this fact or that fact. The facts are available, right? So you look at the facts because you have to. And if you look at the facts as they are right now, then the next stage is called acceptance. Acceptance, not necessarily what we did right or wrong, not necessarily what we can do right in the future. No, no, no. Acceptance in this moment of what is. Once you find that, something very interesting happens. You find peace. And once you find peace, you find meaning. And once you find meaning, then you find purpose. So for me, this one year has been that, going through these stages, experiencing acceptance, finding meaning and purpose, and now using that to reinvent my body, resurrect my soul, and actually over the last one year, with all this contemplative self-inquiry and yoga and breathing and all the exercises that I do, you know, I used to do one or two hours. Now I did four hours every day. Hmm. And in this one year, I have come up with, in my mind, um, a theoretical worldview of how we can consciously reverse climate change. So I've been putting it out there in short videos and getting an amazing response. And then out of the blue, I got my agent, who's a very internationally well-known agent, and he said, you have a new book here. It's called Consciously Reversing Climate Change because nobody else is talking about this. And so that's been my experience. One, yeah. year. One year. If, if I can build on that, I'd, I'd, I'd love our conversation to focus on two themes. Uh, on the one hand, we have lots of business leaders who truly are in the very top of companies and are able to change those organizations. They're not CEOs, they're often chief marketing officers, um, which means that they have lots of influence, but they're not the end decision making. And of course, actually no one is, there's a, a leadership team there, but they're trying to do the right thing and they're thinking through, and I think COVID has excelled that, the role that their company can play. And on the other hand, there's a very uh, individual journey, much as you described just now, that I think every human or most humans have gone through recognizing pieces of the story you just laid out where people have contemplated the world as it has changed around them and their role in that world and their purpose. So if we can talk about those two separately, I think it would be tremendously useful and that hopefully they come together. When you look at companies and you mentioned sustainability and global warming just now. Uh, that's one of the key crises that the world is facing. There's a few others. Um, and you think about the role of business. What comes to mind? And what have you seen change over the last year as businesses have been confronted with this new reality? Well, what I've seen over the last year, uh, year as businesses have confronted the new reality is that most of them are dinosaurs. They're uh, outdated. Um, they have the traditional Wall Street mentality. They come from fear and greed and they uh, are distressed. They're super stressed right now. Uh, and this, the whole business world about jobs, about uh, security, about safety, about competition, and by and large, this is the business 
uh, zeitgeist that I am not part of that ecosystem personally. So what I've seen is entrepreneurs who are not big business magnets are finding great opportunity in this last one year. We are on Zoom right now. Somebody thought of that, right? Yes, and so I have engaged with a lot of other business leaders in the last one year. And slowly, by the way, the traditional Wall Street types are coming along because they recognize they could be dinosaurs. So I'm focusing with, with, uh, with business leaders who are mostly entrepreneurs in four or five area, areas. One is convergence of information technologies. That includes not only what you're doing right now as Zoom, but VR, artificial intelligence, uh, augmented reality. And I've created an innovation lab in Lake Nona, which is putting together new algorithms to look at facial micro expressions, eye movements, mood, voice tone, and correlating that with heart rate variability and blood pressure and immune function. So we're looking at the future of well-being, which is going to be personalized, preventive, predictable, participatory, process-oriented, and totally replicable scientifically through technology. So one area for new business is convergence of information technologies. And I would say these are in four or five areas. One is health and well-being. The second is convergence of information technologies just for informational technology convergence for creativity. When you put a lot of people together with shared vision that complement each other's strengths, that have some kind of an emotional and spiritual connection to an idea, then their convergence actually creates new businesses. It's called emergence. So the areas I'm looking at and encouraging people to invest, market, be entrepreneurs are, one is convergence of information technologies. Second is uh, new ideas on resurrecting the microbiome, the planetary genetic information, combine it with precision fermentation for food production. So you never have to kill an animal uh, and you can make trillions of proteins. Right now, the world is looking at five proteins, chicken, fish, uh, poultry and meat or lamb or beef. That's it. There are trillions of proteins with the genetic information we have in the soil right now under the ground, especially in places like the Amazon and so forth. The third is transportation. Um, uh, energy-free transportation. And the fourth is uh, energy itself and uh, creating energy from uh, waves and particles and gravity. And, and of course, the final would be uh, transportation as well. So these are areas that people are really looking at that you know, I have somewhere here, a monograph with me with uh, people who are actually investing, not millions or billions, but looking at trillions of dollars to reinvent humanity. So this is our opportunity to work with entrepreneurs, with investors, with visionaries for what we call emergence. Emergence happens when I just told you maximum diversity of talent, maximum diversity of race, gender, maximum diversity of education, shared vision, complementing strengths, and emotional, spiritual connection, and technology all have to come together. Otherwise, humanity is on the road to extinction. I guarantee you that. Very clear. And I, I want to, before we write off 
the dinosaurs. I want to talk and ask your perspective on a massive development that we're seeing, which is this uh, companies. This morning, my uh, my colleague Frank van den Driest actually interviewed two people from Patagonia, a company that has activism around the climate in its roots. One of the beautiful things they said was that part of HR actually pales pays bond for people that get arrested, bail. And that's part of the HR strategy, can you believe it? But there are lots of companies that have now publicly made the commitment to move away from this shareholder primacy to a multi-stakeholder uh, orientation, to really say, look, we understand that it is about, and in fact, we probably started with a, a, an orientation around the community we were part of, and somehow many companies lost their way along the way, and and it became all about the shareholders and the stock market. Do you have any faith, confidence? Uh, have you seen stories of companies that have started to transition down the road from moving away from just a shareholder perspective to a multi-stakeholder perspective? Are there any that you find impressive? Well, you mentioned Patagonia. So I think that's the one company that's very authentic and actually believes in... Um, and the issues that they're talking about, uh, particularly climate change, they're getting a good business out of it as well. So they are, in my view, authentic. Now, a while back, I started, founded a nonprofit with Paul Tudor Jones called Just Capital. And uh, one of the things we do is identify companies that are authentically um, changing the value system in uh, Wall Street. And so we have identified about a thousand such companies in order. And um, we feel just that capital. Just Capital. Just Capital, just go online, just ju check out Just Capital. And we've identified these companies. Patagonia certainly is one of them, but you know, we also find that a lot of companies are doing that right now because of PR. They don't actually, <laughs> they feel that they will be left out. So they still haven't figured out the mechanisms. They don't have the right leaders. You know, like, right leaders listen carefully. They are emotionally aware of other people's situations. They expand their own awareness of the zeitgeist. They are action-oriented. They take responsibility. They, uh, they make uh, uh, their own good luck uh, whenever there's a crisis. And it's very rare to find these leaders, but once you find these kinds of leaders, they create an ecosystem such as, for example, you mentioned Patagonia. I, I, that's a very good example, but we have a long way to go. Right now, the cutting edge people, by the way, are not the big companies. They're the entrepreneurs in their garages and they're millennials. And I'm seeing so much creativity coming out of them. I'm totally shocked that these guys will get rid, disrupt the dinosaurs, unless the dinosaurs follow what these guys are doing. So we run a program for um, 100 chief marketing officers. And um, what we do is we try and expose them to the stories of companies that are either small and are starting that way, or big and have made the transition like Unilever back to a multi-stakeholder um, route. And in that program, we're uh, helping them by uh, showing them the data in terms of it leads to business success as well, but also helping them think through how they convince their colleagues in the organization 
to that this is that this is sound business, that this is not just a, a great story, but it's actually the right thing to do, not just for the world, not just for themselves personally, but also for the business. And it's a very, very tough journey. As you said, so many are vested. Um, what do you see in the world around these companies? If you look at the consumer users, people, humans today versus just a year ago, in terms of their demands of the companies they do business with, what changes do you see? Well, at Just Capital, what we did was we did um, surveys on thousands of people that you would uh, identify as investors, but also as employees, also as employers, and also as customers. And what we found was that the most successful companies were the, those that were very aware of the well-being of their uh, employees. So when it comes to employee uh, well-being, that means uh, is, is the employee, first of all, using his or her strengths? Uh, do they feel acknowledged? Do they feel taken care of? Do, does their well-being, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual matter to the company? And what we found was that leaders who actually focus on the well-being of their employees more than anything else and listen to them, including, you know, their complaints about huge disparities in salaries between workers and CEOs and all of that. Yeah. Those companies where the leaders listened to their employees, listened, paid attention and engaged them in their well-being, if employees are happy, immediately translates into customers being happy. And if customers are happy, it immediately translates into investors being happy, as obviously. And if investors are happy, then the employers are happy. So it's a full circle. Focus on your employees and their well-being and their purpose and their mission and their strengths and create an ecosystem where they find fulfillment in their work and you complete the full circle of economic growth responsibly. You know, it's so, I'm so happy you raised that because I think half the questions that people asked me to talk to you about were about doing just that when you don't see each other. People wrote me questions around um, colleagues that, whose well-being they care for drastically but they don't see them. They only see what we see of each other now. And they haven't met for a year. Um, they have conversations that are uh, almost completely limited to business because everybody has 15 Zoom calls a day now. Uh, have you seen any best practices in companies doing this, taking care of their colleagues in this last year? Uh, yes, I'm seeing that in bits and pieces across the world. It's not enough. What I'm encouraging people right now is since we can't meet physically, we can have these conversations and work around four areas. First is attention, which we have deep listening to each other. Second is affection, reassure everyone that you're there and you care. Third is appreciation, notice everyone's strength in your ecosystem and see how you can actually capitalize on their strength and offer them your strengths as well. 
and finally practice some degree of acceptance of the situation as it is. So these I call the four A's, attention, affection, appreciation, acceptance, and see what happens. And, you know, soon the pandemic is, uh, I am confident that the pandemic is going to be over, that there are going to be more than plenty of vaccines, that the mutation is going to die down, and that we are going to come back a little more humble with a little less hubris and a little more respect for each other and the environment. Because in the deeper reality, it is the inflamed environment that causes these mutations. So unless we fix the environment, mutations are going to keep coming, notwithstanding that we we'll be at a race always with new vaccines. It's this traditional story, you new antibiotics, new resistant organisms, on and on. We have to address the deeper issues and those Good that course. do, those that do will make money. Yeah, very clear. Now, um, I think many of the leaders listening started the year thinking this was going to be a sprint. And I mean last year, and it turned into a marathon. And then Zoom came along and um, made us probably three or four times more productive than we'd ever been. However, all the little down moments, the water cooler moments, the coffee, um, the coffee machine moments, they all disappeared. Um, and there's lots of people out there right now, burning out, stressed out, hurting, and probably, as you would say, inflamed. Um, what, what recommendations do you have for snapping out of that, for, for addressing that? Well, um, social science has a lot of work on this and so what makes people happy. In fact, if you go across uh, the studies that um, uh, social scientists have done, you can come up with what they call in various forms, uh, the happiness formula. Ultimately, that's what everybody is trying to achieve, some degree of joy and happiness. So uh, this is how it's usually framed. Happiness, H, stands for S set point in the brain, which I'll explain in a moment, plus conditions of living, plus voluntary choices. So once again, happiness formula, H is equal to set point in the brain. Set point in the brain accounts for 50% of your daily happiness experience. What is the set point? Unhappy people see only problems, happy people see only opportunities, no matter what the situation is. This set point is determined in our childhood by our parents or caretakers. If they were criticizing, condemning, complaining, playing the victim, then you grow up to be unhappy. If they were looking for opportunities, then you grow up to be happy. So this is 50% of your daily experience and you are not to blame for it. It's your parents or caretakers. <laughs> However, you can change your set point by asking one question. What's the opportunity? No matter what the situation is. And slowly, you start to change your set point if you just ask that question. The second part of the formula is conditions of living, which is mainly financial conditions, which is about 15% of your daily happiness experience. So if you win the lottery, you'll be ecstatic. In six months, your happiness will plateau. In one year, it will be back to your set point. So happiness from financial resources, about 15%, important. Uh, very rich people are extremely unhappy because they think of money all the time. Very poor people are also extremely unhappy because they think of money all the time. They can, so a lot of rich people confuse net worth with self-worth. It's yeah. the biggest cause of unhappiness. Yeah. 
And then the third part Among is rich people. Yeah, they confuse their self-worth with net worth. And therefore, you know, it depends on the stock market, whether they have an erection or a relationship or anything, or they have an appetite. It all depends on the stock market. It's yeah, a miserable, yeah. miserable way to live. And then the third part is voluntary choices. So we make two kinds of choices every day. Personal choices for personal pleasure. Alcohol, entertainment, sex, food, etc. Those choices make you happy, but only transiently. The second kind of choice that makes you happy is what you call fulfillment, which means you have meaning, purpose, and you know how to manage relationships and you make other people happy. So that's basically it. Happiness is dependent on whether you're looking for opportunities or problems, number one. Secondly, you are financially secure without being driven by greed and fear. And thirdly, you make choices that are meaningful, purposeful, and make other people happy. If you fix, stay in on course with that, this crisis will be an opportunity for you. Now, we... Um... I hadn't heard that that framework uh, the way you just described it. We we um, quite early on in the program we recommended your program with Oprah, lose the weight, which I just in in one of the emails where somebody wrote me with a question for you, they also mentioned that they had just completed that program, and uh, I, I also have so a big thank you there. I think you um, you uh, you mentioned to Jimmy Fallon in an interview how many people have entered meditation through programs like that. Was it 50 million or 60 million you mentioned? But the ones we taught were 10 million. Okay. Yes. But overall, there's a movement in the world. And, you know, I'm very busy creating digital AI right now, my own twin that can personalize meditation for you. So it's digitaldeepak.ai. If you go there, you can actually have me as your personal coach for the yeah. rest of your life. I will know you and I will tailor everything, all my coaching based on your needs. This is already out there and we are working 24 seven to upgrade the technology every day so that this is, we feel the future of well-being is very closely tied into artificial intelligence, including what people might think is a contradiction. Your spiritual well-being can be enhanced through artificial intelligence. And so I, I have in preparation for this conversation, uh, I didn't know, I hadn't heard about it yet. I then uh, saw you talk about it. I, of course, immediately downloaded it. And uh, somebody also asked a question around it because, um, you know, a lot of the people listening are marketers. They actually have uh, quite a lot of, uh, marketers are now the biggest spenders on technology, funny enough. And, um, and of course, they're thinking through the applications to their world, but now this is for them. Um, talk a little bit more about Digital Deepak, please. How did the, because uh, the question, by the way, that came with that was, how is it that you are always able to reinvent yourself and be on the cutting edge? Because that really is quite amazing. So I'll answer that question first. I focus on four things every day. My day starts with four intentions. Joyful, energetic body. Because if I don't have a joyful, energetic body, then step one is already gone. Okay. Second, love and compassion in my heart. Third, clear mind, creative mind. Fourth, no worries, lightness of being. 
start my day with that. Then I ask myself, what is my deepest desire today to help the world? I don't have goals. I only have what I call in my heart, one formula, love in action. Love in action is very important. Love without action is irrelevant. Action without love is meaningless. But when I focus on love in action, then I automatically download information that I find ends up in a book. You know, I'm doing my 92nd book right now. Yeah. And uh, I'm also talking to companies uh, that are interested in climate change and so on. So, you know, my day passes very effortlessly and joyfully. So the second question was digital Deepak. So what I realized was that, and by the way, there's science to back this up. So only 5% of disease-related gene mutations are fully penetrant. Let me explain what that means. 5% of genetic mutations, which are genetic mistakes, guarantee disease. So for example, uh, if somebody has a Baraka gene, for breast cancer, then a famous example is Angelina Jolie. She had bilateral mastectomy to prevent cancer, to prevent cancer. And she made the right decision because that particular gene mutation will lead to cancer in women. Okay, so she did the right thing. Now for that also there's future technology coming in less than five years, things like CRISPR and so on where you will be able to cut and paste genes the way you cut and paste your email. So you'll be able to read the barcode of a gene, delete the defective gene, and insert the helpful gene. Unfortunately, that will help only 5% of people. 95% of disease, chronic disease, including heart disease, diabetes, depression, anxiety, cancer, autoimmune illness, accelerated aging, frequent infections, 95% is related to one of the following. Lack of sleep, lack of stress management, lack of exercise and mind-body coordination, what I call vagal tone uh, and good breathing, uh, number three. Number four, unhealthy relationships and emotional turbulence. Number five, not being connected to biological rhythms, you know, jet lag and all that stuff that used to happen even more in the past. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the next thing would be nutrition to improve the genetic information in your body, the microbiome, because you only have 25,000 human genes. You have 20 million or 2 million between, depending on where you live, bacterial genes. And we can keep them healthy. You can extend your life. So nutrition now assumes a new importance when we understand the genetic microbiome in our body. And finally, spiritual well-being. Those are the seven pillars of well-being. So what I did was I codified those seven pillars. I created algorithms. And so if you check in Digital Deepak, uh, I will, if you want to share your information with me, I'll be able to know you personally, know what your challenges are, and then cater care for your well-being that is personalized, predictable, preventive, requires your participation. And I can be your personal coach for the rest of your life. And if people have a handheld device, 
I can do that with 7 billion people one-to-one simultaneously. So this is, and uh, this guy will hang around till long after I'm dead. So he could be a personal coach to the grandchildren of my grandchildren (laughs) and learn from them as well, the latest technologies. So what I sense is an enormous um, responsibility, uh, a sense of how you start your day, how we each start our day, our intentions for ourselves, and for others and for the world around us. And that sets you off on a journey. I heard you say something around lightfulness, no big plans. I think probably most people feel that they live in a world where there are big plans and where they'd be made even worse by other people for us. Um, I I, I sense a lightness around you. Um, Your reality is slightly different than most people. To the people that you've worked with that are part of companies, part of ecosystems that demand things from them. Um, how, how do they create that lightness for themselves? You know, sometimes it just comes through personal growth and time. Sometimes nobody listens, but you know, when you get to where I am, you see that, you know, my colleagues right now are unhealthy and a lot of them are dying and I feel like I'm 35. So, you know, and my biological markers in fact are 35. So, you know, so why would somebody lose, the average person lives 80 plus if they're in good health, okay? That's a very short time, by the way, that's nothing, okay? And it flies by like this, like a dream. So if you make every day meaningful, purpose and joyful, you have a full life. The only moment you have is right now and the response that you have to right now is determining your entire life. So what is the meaning of life? Well, depressed people say it's a sexually transmitted incurable condition. Um, But happy people say it's your response to the present moment. That's it. Because that's all you have. So that that, that living in the present uh, is is, is very clear. At the same time, uh, you talked about purpose. And so how does does purpose um, offer a framework or not a framework, a direction. And, and, and what, how did you come to your purpose? What is it and how does that make you make choices? See, I come from a tradition of yoga. So there are four kinds of yoga. One is the physical, practical yoga I do every day, meditation, self-inquiry, etc. So that, that's called Raja Yoga. It's called Royal Yoga. The second is Gyan Yoga, which is intellectual. You know, you try to figure out what the heck is going on in the world and what's your role in it. So that's intellectual, very self-inquiry. The third is the yoga of love. You just focus on love and everything takes care of itself. And the fourth yoga is service. And I believe in that very much. I believe in Karma Yoga or service as the only way to be joyful. And then when I, that is where meaning and purpose comes in. I ask myself, how can I help? What is my deepest desire and how can I help? That's it. And then everything organized. That's where meaning and purpose. I don't have to plan that by, you know, 2022, I'll retire because then I'll be dead. You know, why would I retire? I mean, and you use the word responsibility. The word means two things, ability to respond. Okay, that's all responsibility means. The more creative you are in your ability to respond, the happier you'll be. Yeah. 
Well, Deepak, I, I have many more questions, but I also know how busy you are. And um, uh, I remember like yesterday that you invited me over for a conversation on your podcast. Yeah, uh, yes, a long time ago when Frank and I published our first book and I uh, was enormously honored. And, uh, and I remember the conversation because it took us in every direction again. Uh, this time the circle comes around and I get to interview you, which was very nice. Um, I, I want to thank you for that. Thank you, and I wanted to ask you if you have two more, three more, four more minutes, if we could end with a small meditation for everyone. Sure, sure. So wherever you are, whoever you are, sit comfortably. Um, use a backrest if you can, so your spine is erect. Plant your feet firmly on the ground and keep your hands open on your lap and let's close our eyes for a moment and just observe the breath. The breath mirrors the movement of thought. So if you're agitated, your breath will reflect that. But if you observe the breath without judgment, it'll slow down because that's what we need to observe without judgment. And we can start just with the breath. Slows down. The mind slows down. Now bring your awareness into your heart and mentally ask the following question. Who am I? What am I? Am I the changing body or am I the awareness in which the body is a changing experience? Am I the changing mind or am I the awareness in which the changing mind is an experience? Am I anything physical in the world or am I the awareness in which I see the physical world changing all the time. Who am I? What am I? Sit with that question for 20 seconds. Don't try to answer it. Just the question, what am I? Who am I? And now mentally ask the question, what is my deepest desire? What do I really want? Again, don't try to answer the question. Just be open to any sensation, any image, any feeling, any thought that spontaneously comes to you. And now ask the question, what is my purpose? What is my calling now in this moment? Once again, allowing any sensation, any image, any feeling, any thought to spontaneously come.
Last question, what am I grateful for? Allowing any sensation, image, feeling or thought to come to you. What am I grateful for? Gratitude opens the door to opportunity. What am I grateful for? And now, if you don't mind, just start um, repeating your name to yourself. I'm Mark, I'm Deepak, I'm John, I'm Mary. That name reflects everything about you. And now drop your name altogether and just repeat, I am, with no name, no form attached to it. And now replace the I am with the sound mantra, aham, 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 just the vibration. Finally, let the mantra go. Just rest in awareness, that's it. That's who we are, awareness. Awareness has no shape, no sound, no color, no form, no age. It is infinite. Just rest in awareness, rest in infinite possibilities right now. No thought, no mantra. Just be aware of being aware. This still presence that you're experiencing is the real you. Everything else is a byproduct. So hold on to it, the true self. So now take a few seconds and then slowly open your eyes. So that's it. Thank you, Mark. Deepak Chopra, thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Till next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.